Hello, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us. You just need to click on the link and become an ACAST supporter. It's a one-off donation. You can give as much or as little as you like, and uh, there's no commitment. But it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts. So thank you very much. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ho, ho, ho! Ideas in writing! Hello, I'm Philip Holden and this is Ideas in Writing, the podcast where we use words to discuss words that are written, spoken, sung, heard or even unspoken. Maybe those words are just in your mind. We're on episode seven and as you might have noticed from our theme tune, it's a kind of Christmas special. In this episode, I talk to the wonderful and very wise Ian McMillan. He's a poet first and foremost, but he's also a writer of prose, newspaper columns, plays, and he's known in village halls around the nation and to the audience of Radio 3's The Verb, and uh, you've probably seen him on uh, BBC Television's Countryfile as a presenter and performer. We talked about his origins in Yorkshire. He was the son of a pair of romantics, and he tells the story of his mum and dad, um, and the support they gave him that enabled him to carve out a career as a writer. We talked about his daily walks, his daily tweeting and his daily cup of tea and we talked therefore about the discipline of writing every day and his ambition to have a daily newspaper column. So if there's any uh, editors or commissioning editors out there, um, you know who to contact. Before we started recording, Ian apologised that he hadn't listened to uh, earlier episodes and yet, and yet, he chose the word palimpsest which kind of brings us into a a full circle to our very first show um so um we had to talk about that my word was uh theater and you can find out why we chose these by listening to the episode it was a fun chat and uh we've already agreed that as soon as it's possible ian's going to come down and visit the bookshop and do some kind of real event for mr books so here it is palimpsest Theatre with Ian McMillan. So, Ian, thank you very much for uh, agreeing to be on the podcast. Well, thank you for asking me. I do think the podcast space is the most interesting space. It's like a bookshop in a way, a podcast, isn't it? Because you can browse around it, you can you can wander about. I suppose it's a bookshop that's always open, that is never closed. That's the great thing about podcasts, isn't it? You can listen to them wherever and whenever you are. So it's kind of like a mobile bookshop that never closes. And see, I'm getting further away from my bookshop <laughs> analogy as we speak. <laughs> yeah, but it's. Uh, but I think you're right, is that um, 
what I found really interesting is the ability to uh, explore things and, and not, ha- you know, it's not like radio mm. in a way. Mm. And you're, you're very experienced on radio where you've got a, a very kind of tight schedule. And uh, if you're interviewing somebody, it's got to be whatever it is, five mm. minutes and that's yeah. it. And, uh, and uh, I, I guess Radio 4 is a bit better than that in many ways, but still, they're time constraints, aren't well, they? Well, they're tied to a schedule. So, you know, you can make a 30-minute program, 15-minute program, 45-minute program, very occasionally a one-hour program. The beauty of the podcast is that it can last seven minutes or it can last two hours. And and they really are breaking down that idea of what a program length is. And it reminds me of that thing that used to be on Channel 4 when it first started. There was that open-ended discussion program. Remember that? It was called something like Voices. Was it? Yes, towards the end of the of the yeah, and it was just gone. It was open. It would yeah. carry on till two a.m. Yeah. And that's somehow how I feel about podcasts, definitely. And I, I think it's great that uh, oh, that's, did you oh, hear that? the that's cat coming in? <laughs> it's the cat going through the cat. Oh, yeah. uh, that's the other thing about podcasts, isn't it? Um, last time I was talking to the Rickard sisters, who've uh, published this. Um, Ragged Trousers of Philanthropists as a, as a graphic novel. And halfway through, we had to stop. Well, we didn't stop, actually. We carried on because the, the bin men came. Mm. And um, and Scarlett was worried that they'd come on the wrong day. So. Well, that's the beauty of the podcast, isn't it? That it doesn't have to take place in the sacred BBC studio. And then you do, because of that, get a sense of eavesdropping on people's lives, I think, most definitely. And that's... Uh, that's i mean i've got in front of me a copy of to fold the evening star uh-huh. which is <laughs> you said that in a non-commercial oh, no, I, I, I was it, i was always pleased with the title of that i think it's uh, sometimes i'm not pleased with titles but i was quite keen on the title and where does the title come from sorry i should explain to people that this is i think this is the latest collection isn't it's, it yeah i've done a couple of pamphlets since but this is the latest book and it was just i think that one of the poems in the book just mentions it in the line it was just the idea of Always, and it's an old thing in a way, but the, the titles of, and names of newspapers, like, you know, I'm just going for the sun, the star, and the mirror, which yeah. feels, I don't know, it feels, it feels almost like ancient ancient science. And so the idea of folding an evening yeah. star just, just struck me as a resonant yeah. phrase, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really enjoy this book. I mean, it's, I recommended it to someone. I don't know whether I mentioned this to you, uh, maybe via... Twitter, because that's how we first kind of um, mm. got in touch with each other. But uh, um, somebody asked for a, a, a book that they could keep in the glove box of their car. That's right. Yes, I remember <laughs> that. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. Good and uh, she, she wanted something that she could, you know, if she was waiting for someone or she, uh, stuck in traffic, I suppose, mm. she could just, just pick it out it. and read yeah. something. Yeah. And and it does that. And the pieces are so different. I mean, it was re- it really opened my eyes. Because I think there's all kinds of uh, uh, prose as well and poetry in there and different kinds of poetry. Yeah, there's, well. there's poetry. I, I often get asked to write poems for occasions, so there's some of that. There's bits of prose, as you say. There are little stories. And, and, and I just like the fact that there are lots of different kinds of writing in it. And I think that should be mm. a lesson to us all as writers, that you don't just have to write one kind of thing. So I'm lucky enough that somebody will every now and then ring me up and ask me to write something about something very specific. So, for example, somebody wrote me, I had to write a poem uh, to go on the outside of some uh, a, a folder that first edition stamps went in, and that was an odd thing to, to do. And then sometimes you get asked to write things for commercial purposes, like I was asked to write a thing about pork pies. And, and you've got to try and make it a poem that works on its own merits, but also will work for this wider audience who aren't necessarily a poetry reading audience. So I do love that idea of being able to turn your hand to any kind of writing. And that's why I'm such a big tweeter. As you know, I tweet all the time. And I yeah. get up very early in the morning, go for my early morning stroll, <laughs> tweet about that. And that's just me forcing my brain as though I've, so I've commissioned myself to write something new about the same, it's always the same walk. I just walk out of the house around the village, back in the house, takes about 40 minutes, and I, I pound my brain to try and see something new every day. And, and to me, that's that's what writing is, pounding the brain to see something new and then yeah. sometimes being asked to write something. And because you're used to pounding your brain, 
then it becomes a little bit easier, I think. Well, yeah, it's it's a real lesson, I think. I mean, my son, who does a bit of writing, did a, a, a I guess it's a kind of writing course at the, at the Royal Court, I mm. think. Uh, and one of the things he came back with uh, that, that stuck with me was, um, uh, don't get it right, R-I-G-H-T, mm. get it written. Yeah, that's dead right, yes. And that I, yes, the idea about just getting something on the paper. Because often when, you, when you're committing to do something, you think, gosh, I wish I'd got another three weeks, another half an hour. Yeah. But then you have to write the thing and you yeah. have to send it off. And and then you read it, you think, well, you know, that's all right. But another month, it could have been better. But then you're right. Don't get it right. Get it written. It's definitely, definitely. Mm. That, that should be on every writer's wall of their room that they write. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And so that, so that was a thinking when you, because uh, you've been on Twitter quite a while. Uh, yeah, uh, and you must you must have written something pretty much every day. Yes, uh, well, Twitter. I, I wasn't on it, but then one of my producers at the Verb, my Radio Three show, said, "Ian, I think you ought to go on Twitter and just tweet every now and then, and uh, maybe maybe do one tweet a week or something, just let people know." And then yeah. I did a couple, and I suddenly thought, "I like this. I like the fact that you tweet something that's not a poem." And that's not a story, and that's not a novel, but it's tweet, and it's a thing, and it's quite funny, or it's serious, or it's thoughtful, or it's throwaway, and that's the key word. Throwaway is gone. You tweet it out there, and people either like it or they don't. They don't, but it doesn't matter because in a moment there'll be another one along, and it'll arrive, and, mm. and and that's what I like about it, and it really concentrates the mind. Some of my heroes on Twitter. People like the great Moose Alain. Moose Alain just does the most amazing yes. tweet. He's great, isn't he? And they're funny, they're, they're serious. One of my favourites of his is, um, I'm going to build a model of Mount Everest. Is it to scale? No, just to look at. Oh, clever, <laughs> clever gags like that. The gags and a bit more. And I think that's what Twitter makes you do. So, yes, I, I do. And it's thanks to the verb asking me to tweet. And now my wife says that I tweet too much, which is probably true. But... Yes. It doesn't have to make you think. It doesn't have to make you... It gets your brain going in the morning. And I do try and steer clear of the horrible cesspit. If anybody says anything nasty, I'd rid of it. Because I think that our corner of Twitter should be full of joy and excitement and adventure and discovery, I reckon. Oh, in that case, I'd like to apologise for some of my tweets. Oh, well, no. I mean, <laughs> the, the person I feel sorry for is there's quite a few uh, people, there's quite a few Ian McMillans, and uh, it's not an uncommon name. <laughs> but people go, oh, I am not Ian McMillan the poet. People keep tweeting other Ian McMillans saying, what, what does that mean in that poem? And he says, I can't help you there. <laughs> <laughs> but you, there's the two things you always uh, tweet about and and there's there's your walk mm. and there's your first cup of tea. Yes. Well, the, yeah. the walk. Um, so I try to tweet something as I when I wake up. So I wake up and then I tweet a pre-walk tweet just to get myself on the starting route. But I'll <laughs> I'll tweet the walk as you say, and then I I started tweeting my first cup of tea because I do like a nice cup of tea, and then mm. that's become another challenge for me to always think of some other way of describing. My first cup of tea. Yeah. But to be honest with it, that time of day is my best time of day. You know, we're, we're recording is this it? in the mid-afternoon, and that's after this, I will start to fade away. I'll start to, <laughs> one or two of the boilers will start to shut down. There'll be a bit of wind going out of my sails. I tried to go for an afternoon stroll and an evening stroll under lockdown. I've been doing a lot more walking. But I find that I couldn't, I couldn't write a tweet about my evening stroll. I don't, because it feels to me that, it's a lot. We're all different, but my creative juices flow like a river at the start of the day, and then after about half past four in the afternoon, my wife will tell you that you know this evening obviously, and I think I might just listen to a nice concert on Radio Three, and she'll say yes, I'll give you five minutes. I'll have gone. That's done. Yeah. Like my dad used to. So, so it is. And so the first cup of tea and the early tweet, stroll tweet and the morning tweets, they're me. I guess, celebrating the fact that I'm feeling quite fecund at that time of day. And that's why the tweets tend to tail off in the late afternoon and the early evening. I wanted to, I, before I forget, because I generally do forget, is to uh, is for us to exchange the, the words that we've brought mm. along. Uh, I, don't, I don't know whether you want to go first. I can go first. My, but mine, mine, go on, you go, you go first, Philip. You go first. 
Well, I was just going to say it ties into, I think, to what what uh, you were talking about—the sort of uh, uh, bashing the brain to uh, to 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 write and uh, and the variety of uh, of work that's in uh, in the book, as I say. But my word was going to be theatre. Oh yes, theatre. What a what a fantastic word that is. It is, isn't it? I think. I mean, for all kinds of reasons, whether you're uh, into the theatre or not. Go on, say what you like about. Yeah, whether you like theatre or not, what I think your your writing does, certainly in this collection, is it creates spaces um, in which uh, which things happen. Mm. You know, so it's like you know, you you've created a space on Twitter where. Uh, you know, every morning I know there's going to be a, a tweet from you and it's going to be creative and imaginative and it's going to paint a picture. And uh, uh, but it's equally, you know, you have written a play you've, uh, and you've in your you write prose. Mm. And it seems to me that you just find any any place you can to create something. And, and it uh, what I noticed about some of these poems, it was that they can only be read in your own mind yeah no, that's all true. some of them wouldn't work out loud as it were yeah so there's even a theater space in the mind there that uh yeah i i i was it was a revelation to me anyway. well you're right i mean that that is that is my mission in a way that that um to make a space for performance whatever that performance is whether it's a performance on somebody's own a tweet performance in an actual space and the idea of making every space that you enter a space for theatre is a thing. I mean, as you know, I, I love performing in village halls. That's been one of the worst things I've been able yeah. to do gigs. My ambition yeah. is to perform in every village hall in Britain. Uh, I'll never do it now, even before, because there are 13,500 or something. I've been to a, maybe 800. I remember a year before the lockdown, I did a little interview on Radio 4 uh, on you and yours, because they, they, they knew that I liked village halls. They wanted me to talk about village halls. As I'm talking mm. about the village halls. Suddenly it was like I was possessed by the demon of village halls. And I suddenly went, I want to perform in every village hall in Britain. <laughs> and my agent, Adrian, tweeted me and said, I surrender. <laughs> and it was an amazing thing. I, I've never known anything like that in all my decades of being freelance performer. Those four minutes of me talking about village halls on Radio 4, generated literally dozens of people saying, well, all right, come to my village hall, come to my village hall, come to my village hall, come to my village hall. I got a year's worth doing one or two gigs a week of gigs with my mate, the musician, Luke, all over Britain, thanks yeah. to that. And, and that was creating a space. Yeah, I love the idea of the theatre space and also the idea of the performative life, you know, that your life is a performance, whatever else it is. So yeah, yeah, that was theatre, and I do like. I love going to the theatre, but I, I, I there's that wonderful Peter Brook book called The Empty Space about what theatre can be, yeah. you know, and it can be dead, and it can be restricted. Yeah. The idea of just somebody doing something in a space, and there might be other people there, or they might be somewhere else. Because one thing that's going to come out of all this is the hybrid thing, isn't it? Where you can, there'll be some people in the yeah. room, and there'll be some people watching it on Zoom, and. That's got to be good. Yeah, theatre. I love that word, theatre. Good. Great. good. I, I'm also reminded you of your poem, Norman Stop Me on the oh, Street. Norman, yeah. I don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know whether you remember. I do. I, I, do you want me to, I, I'll find it if you want. Do uh, you want me to read it to you? Yeah, go on then. Yeah, okay. yeah why not? That'd be brilliant. If I can find it. Uh, I mean, the thing about Norman. It's on, it's on page 160. Is it, have you got the page there? Page. Oh, yeah, Norman stuck me in the street. And then there's a sequel to that, which I'll do both of them. Um, oh, okay. Norman, I actually saw Norman the other day, Norman Faraday, lovely fella. Uh, mm. See him walking up and down the village all the time. And he's a very um, cultivated man, a cultured man. But he, like a lot of people around here, thinks that maybe the theatre is not the space for him. He'll go and see what he calls a show, but he wants to go and see a play. Mm. And so this is him... Uh, me on the street people often stop me on the street and uh, either give me poems tell me poems or ask me about poems and this is norman and it's written in uh, yorkshire language norman stopped me on the street and he said hey ian lad i could go to theater if i wanted i reckon i could sit there and clap at end and chat more and then i go on and say where have you been to shop to bus stop to wall to shed i've been to theater I've got a programme. I could do that, Ian. No stopping me, is there? 
And then when I read that aloud, I always go, no, no, there's nothing stopping you. <laughs> the kind of... Beast. But then Norman, he started writing poems, and he's, he's, he often sticks them through my letterbox. But then there's there's a little one I wrote called Norman Came to My House, which he often does and knocks on the door. And uh, this is that. Uh, and it's, again, about, about language and about who we are and who we represent ourselves as when we write. Norman came to my house. Two parts. One, Norman came to my house and said, Right, Ian, I've written a poem. Can I show thee it? It doesn't rhyme. And it's about my thoughts, my thoughts about England. And it were right, Dad, not to make it rhyme, but I think I managed it. Modern poem, that is. Don't have to rhyme, do they, modern poetry? I'll leave it with thee. Part two. Later, I rang Norman to talk to him about his poem. His answering machine was Norman with a phone voice. The score is Barnsley 6, Manchester United 0, and the second half is about to start. So you'll understand that I can't get to the phone right now. It's OK, Norman. I'll ring back later to talk about modern So the idea was that Norman thought that modern poetry didn't rhyme, and also he felt that he had to put on a phone voice on the phone that wasn't his voice. And, you know, as, as the great poet from Leeds, Tony Harrison, said, you know, we're the ones that Shakespeare gives the comedy parts to, you know, the ones who sort of like me or yes. type, sort of like Norman. And, and part of my thing all through my career has been to say, however you speak is the right way to speak. So, yeah, that's Norman, Norman Faraday. Oh, I yes. <laughs> okay. saw him again the other day. He's, he's, he saw him in Cleethorpes, which is about halfway through the summer, and him and his wife were walking down the prom, both wearing masks. At the time when not many people were wearing masks. And I said to Norman, uh, you're all right in the open air, no. We're by the sea. You don't have to wear your mask. I'm getting used to it. <laughs> 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 oh, dear me. Um, no, it's interesting what you say about the voice and and the accent. And not uh, it's not uh, it's not even just dialect, is it? Um, it's because uh, I think uh, you know Kate Fox. Yes, I do know you? Kate Fox. Yes, uh, she's yes. a regular on, on the uh, verb. Yeah. On the verb, and she, 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 I met her at an event actually in Tunbridge, actually that we we were um, selling books at. Um, but she said something about the uh, this sort of duality of, of, of uh, as it, I guess, being an intellectual but having an accent mm, yeah. and being being able to move between two different. I don't know what it is. Two different spaces. Two different codes, two really, different... isn't it? I mean, they, and they people say yeah. that, you know people say to me, put that voice on. I said, no, I talk like this in the house. You know, people people assume. <laughs> that weird phrase professional yorkshireman that people level at me you know they say they say you're a professional yorkshireman i suppose i don't quite know what that means but this is how i speak you know and and i think you can be intellectual and loving and subtle and nuanced in this but but a lot of people you know have it have it knocked out of them oh yeah it's a yeah. kate kate is stuck to a, a, a she's from bradford isn't she originally she's stuck to a bradford act yeah fantastic way Shall I, shall I give you my word, which is kind of related to what we're oh, talking yes, about? Oh, yes, of course. Yes, please. Uh, my word is yeah. palimpsest. I love the word palimpsest. No. Palimpsest is... Really? Yeah. Oh, God, I love it. <laughs> it's one of those words where writing is on top of other writing. So writing on writing on yeah. writing. Palimpsest. I got told off. That is so funny. Yeah, go on. It's, it's so funny because the very first episode I recorded with my friend Ian, another mm. Ian, uh, Ian Tucker Bell, my word was palimpsest. Palimpsest. Have you said it wrong all these years? Palimpsest. I've said palimpsest. Anyway. Oh, I did. Whatever it is, but <laughs> see, the, the word palimpsest itself contains mysteries. I think, it, to me, the word palimpsest or palimpsest just contains the whole of writing because it's the idea that you can you can write, you can rewrite, that writing is layered on top of other writing. And also somehow. It's one of those words that it isn't quite like you'd imagine it would be. You would think that a word about writing on writing would be, I don't know, it would sound different, it would look different. So, for example, the word mm. pulchritudinous is about beauty. Yes. And isn't it an odd word? Yes. That woman was pulchritudinous. You think, well, that's strange. Or a word like bucolic doesn't suggest what yeah. it means. And to me, the word, the word palimpsest, because it's such a magical word, it doesn't suggest that in the word itself. So to me, the word palimpsest is a word that contains multitudes. I got told off at the verb years ago using the word palimpsest far too often in my introduction to people. <laughs> I said, look, Ian, you've passed 
the palimpsest limit. You're not allowed any more palimpsests at all. It is my favourite. So if we could, you and I form a theatre company, we'll call it the Palimpsest Theatre. That's what it'll be. I think we'd have to. The Palimpsest <laughs> Theatre of the Word. That's what it'll be. No, it's a, it's a great word because, it, uh, and it's one of those words that, as you say, like pulchritudinous mm. and where, where you don't encounter them very often. And I know that, you know, uh, I, I guess you're, you're like me, you were a sort of uh, avid library goer as a yes. child. Yes. And, uh, uh, and you come across these words, and you, and and you almost think, coming back to the to the uh, to the accent mm. and the language, you almost think, well, those words are not for yes, me. Yes, you do. You, that's exactly right. For, that's these exactly. are words for clever people. Yeah, you, you're dead right. That and what you think, palimpsest. Yes, that's exactly what you feel. You think, well, that's a, that is a word for the clever people. That's a word that they might use. Yeah. And also, I don't know if you found this as an avid library person. I would read writers that I really liked or thought I should read and like, but then couldn't pronounce yeah. their names. And my oh, my yeah. letdown was Goethe, who I pronounced as Goeth. And I was <laughs> yes. at first year at North Staffordshire Polytechnic, there was this girl I was talking to, and I said, yeah, I, I love the work of Goeth. And you think, ah, oh, we've all done it, you know. But hear me. Yeah. So it is, you're right, there are words that, when you're in the library, that leap out at you, but you think, well, they're not for me. Or they're words that actually... They just exist on the page, and if you try to save them, then you lose a bit of the magic yeah. because you mispronounce them. Yeah, that's just true with so many, uh, so many names as well, mm. isn't it? As you say, authors particularly. So, um, as we're on that uh, that subject about the young Ian McMillan, mm. your dad was in the navy. He's Scottish. Yes, my dad was from yeah. a place called Carnwath, which is not far from Lanark, and my mother is from the next village to where I live in Barnsley. They met as pen pals in the Second World War. So, oh, yeah, really? it's, it's a fantastic story. My dad, he always wanted to join the Navy, and he, he was born in 1919. He'll be 100 this year, many years ago. But he thing was always to join the Navy, but he lived in a kind of landlocked Atlantic. Almoth is not near the sea, but he wanted to join the Navy. So he joined the Navy in 1937, and my mother just lived in this local pit village and was conscripted into the WAFs in 1939 or 40. And there was a scheme that they had where single service people could write to each other. So my mum, from her base at RAF Blackmook in near Wigan, wrote to my dad. And they had this fantastic romance where they wrote to each other uh, for ages mm -hmm. before they actually met. And, and I, I always put that as one of the reasons that I'm a writer, because they met through writing. They write to each other. Yeah. And because, then, because it was the war, they kept trying to meet, couldn't, because of the wartime trains. My dad would land in Plymouth, and he'd get the train up, and they tried to meet at the Queen's Hotel in Leeds for afternoon tea and just miss each other. And they only met about three or four times, and they got married on a 48-hour pass wow. in 1943. My dad sent this telegram. He landed. He was about to land in Plymouth. He sent this telegram. They had the bands read. They were going to get married in Peebles, not far from Edinburgh. Family connections yeah. there. My dad sent this telegram that said, get leave now. And my mum sent this telegram back that said, cannot get leave. And my dad ignored that and just set off up on the train to Peebles. So my mother begged and pleaded with the staff there because they said, look, this is the war. We we might never see each other again. He was off to the South China Seas. He was He was... In the middle of the war, and so, but they wouldn't let her go, so she went AWOL, AWOL for love. She climbed over the fence and got on the train at Wigan Walgate Station, and they had one night together in the Tontine Hotel in Peebles. Then my dad went back on secret war work. She never saw him for a year. She went back to the WAFs and got arrested for going AWOL. And, and the thing was, it's a fantastic story, and I think it grew in the telling, because my dad would say things like, yeah, I was really, I was really early at the, at the church, and I saw your mother running up the main street. Oh. And my dad was stood there with, with a bolt of Chinese silk under his arm that his sister was going to make that he bought from Shanghai, and his sister was going to make it into a wedding dress. We never got around to it. And the thing was, that story became their personal myth. My dad left the navy in 1958 when I was two. My mum looked after her mother, so he came to they lived in Barnsley and. But every night, oh, it felt like they would just tell that story again, you know, because and I wrote a play about it for Radio 4. And it just struck me that what an astonishing story that, you know, that these two people would never, ever have met in normal life, met because of the war, met because of writing, 
and it's romantic stories. They were both they were both unutterable romantics because of that. So yeah, that's where they were from. So that's how yeah. that's how come I was in Barnsley, but I had this this history of. Uh, and as as you say, it was it was about uh, their writing. Yeah, the writing because they were. My dad uh, wasn't a great speller, but he, his writing was. He got very excitable. So I remember him going, "Olive, when we get together, we will have some fun," and it felt fun with several ends. He was so excited. Tragically, <laughs> um, I don't know why they they threw most letters away. I've got a couple, but not many. So I had to kind of recreate it. And when I wrote this play about it, yeah. because. But then I tried to imagine their meetings. What would they be like? What would they? They would be a bit like brief encounters, you know. They would meet and they would chat and they would they would try and find out about each other. And it, it was a, an amazing thing. But it started with writing. That's how it started. So that's that's. I was, and also my dad's auntie. My dad had got this auntie Bella, who was a, a Victorian poet. She was a Victorian oh, rhyming really? balladeer. Yeah, but Bella Howardson lived in a place not far from Carmoth. He featured in this book called uh, Modern Scottish Poets, just two or three of her ballads. They weren't great poems. They were very Victorian, but she was always seen as Aunt Bella the Poet. And she would write my dad these rhyming letters. I'm sure that if rhyme and rhythm and language comes to you through your DNA, then that was it for me. It was so great Aunt Bella Howardson and my mum and dad meeting through writing. And also, I mean, the young Ian Macmillan, went to school in the West Riding of Yorkshire, which I often talk about as being such a joy because the West Riding was, in the 60s, right up to 1974, was a, an educational experiment. It was run by a godlike genius called Sir Alec Clegg. He was the chief education officer. Oh. And he just said, all children are creative. So in our junior school, we would sing, we would dance, we would do art, we'd have theatre, we'd have stories, and we'd write poems endlessly. Oh, at the end of every lesson, at the end of maths, at the end of history, we would write a poem, we'd draw a picture. And, and, and the idea that the child being creative was just seen as the bedrock of everything. I was so lucky to yeah. go to a West Riding school because it was just it, it just said, you are you can write. There's a fantastic book called The Excitement of Writing by Sir Alec Clegg. Full of writing by kids from mining village schools and, and textile village schools. And he puts that writing and he says, this writing is as important as Shakespeare and Dickens. So that I'm very lucky that I had these parents and that I, I was born in this place where I still live. It really was the fountainhead of all the things that I've yeah. done. Yeah, and, and so presumably they were uh, completely supportive of you wanting to write. Yeah, they were. And, I mean, that, they, and... they saw it as a... My dad always thought, my dad... He said he should get a proper job first. He was always a bit of a proper job man, quite rightly too. You know, he yeah. in the Navy then. He left the Navy in 1958 and went to work in an office in Sheffield. And he always thought I should have a proper job. My mother, on the other hand, yeah. just said, be a writer, just be a writer. She just thought I should be a writer. But also the idea of standing up and performing, I like. So as a kid, I was in a band like every teenager is, you know, so, and, and I like performing, yeah. I like standing up in folk clubs and reading out me how to read and perform yeah. in public. But yeah, they were absolutely and completely supportive. And that's why I support people. That's why I said to people like Norman Faraday, carry on writing. That's why everybody I meet, I always say, carry on. If you're writing, carry on. Don't stop. Carry on. Because I've been endlessly encouraged. Uh, and that, you know, my yeah. wife encourages me, everybody. I'd be, I'm so lucky. So when I gave my job up, I've, I've been freelance now since 1983, astonishing. And, you know, I worked in a couple of, I went to college, North Staffordshire Bull. I uh, got a job in a on a building site and a job in a tennis ball factory. And then 1983, applied for this grant from Yorkshire Arts Association with a local branch, what's now the Arts Council, and would give you up to a thousand pounds if you gave your job up. I applied for this thousand quid. They gave me eight hundred pounds. Psychologically, it's a lot less. You think well, eight hundred, a thousand. But my wife and my parents would say, "Go on then, give your job up if that's what you want to do. Give your job up." And and I did. And and then what you realise is. As I often say, you know, you give your job up and you got your 800 quid. My wife was working as a teacher at the time, so you weren't skinned. But you go, right, I'm here, I'm here, come on, world, come on, I'm here. And then no, nothing happens. You stand there going, right, I'm ready. Yeah. I've had a few poems published in magazines. I've got a book coming out, but that's not going to make you living. So that's when I started doing what I've done since, which is whirling round and round, doing writing workshops, performances, gigs, always saying yes. I mean, a lot of writers say this. If somebody says, can you do this? Just say yes. I'll do that. And if it yeah. doesn't work, then they won't ask you again. 
don't matter. You know, so somebody said, can you write this? Yes. It didn't work. Uh, can you perform here? Yes. Can you do this commission? Yes. Did you do that? And, that's, and I did that because when I gave up my job in 1983, I thought, what am I going to do? And, and eventually people ask you to do stuff and you end up saying yes. Well, that was going to be one of my other questions was, was how how do you make a living well, <laughs> as a poet? But I mean, you know, it's, it's I guess that's what you put. You yeah, I mean, to start is... with, um, when I gave my job up, there was one or two things happening. So uh, I would do the odd reading. There used to be a thing you might remember called the National Poetry Secretariat. Remember that? And they would do. No, I don't remember. No, it was funded by, I think, the Arts Council. And they would, they would fund a gig for 30 quid. So you would do a gig and you'd say it's National Poetry Secretariat. The organiser had to find 10 quid. The NPS would find the other 20. And you'd do this gig for 30 quid. So I was doing some of those. I was writing reviews yeah. for the, National, the New Musical Express, the NME. And they would pay 13 quid a review. Then I was doing a lot of writing workshops for the WEA, the Workers' Educational Association. They would pay something like 15 quid. For that and so it began from that but the actual writing of poems you very rarely make a living from but the actual talking about those and performing poems and reading poems you can make yeah. a living from as long as as long as you're not precious about them. i mean you end up doing things maybe you might not do you know but you end up one of the most amazing things years ago was to write a sonnet for domestos the well-known group. Um, they rang up, Domestos rang up, and they said, can you write a sonnet about Domestos? And I said, yes, I can. And they said, can it include the phrase, champagne of the smallest room? I said, yes. They said, and it was National Toilet Week, and they said, we're going to build, the more I said this, the less likely it seems. They said, we're going to build a giant wooden toilet in Leicester Street, and we're going to get you to stand in this giant wooden toilet, read the poem out, it's National Toilet We get BBC, ITV, Channel 4, all these different... And we have the radio, and the telly, and the paper. And yeah, I said, all right. I said, but said, we've only got half an hour window in Leicester Square. You have to rent this space. So we've got to be there at half seven till eight o'clock. That's all we got. So down the night before, I've written my poem, and I'm stood there with my poem. And they, they sent me... A, they gave me a framed copy of my poem. I'm stood there with my poem under my arm. And I get there. And built this toilet, this massive wooden toilet. I said, right, well, so I go up to the toilet and start reading the poem. They went, no, it's all right, because they're not here yet from, uh, from the ITV and BBC. <laughs> Meanwhile, this woman came up who stood next to me. I didn't know who she was. She was very small, and she's got a carrier bag. And anyway, we then it then occurred to me, but not to the PR people, that it was nobody was going to turn up. So they get a phone call from BBC. There'd been some big news items. Sorry, we can't come. ITV, can't come. Channel 4, can't come. Local radio, can't come. Nobody came. Nobody at all came. At 8 o'clock, <laughs> these fellas had to get out of a van, dismantle this toilet. I never got to read it out. It turns out the woman was one of the people from Domestos who came to see what happened. And I said, I'm sorry about this. She went, well, it's not your fault. You know, it, it, these things happen with you. But said, she had a carrier bag. She said, I write poems. I went, oh. She said, can I show you some of my poems? I went, yes, you can. So... Me and her sat in this coffee shop for about two hours reading her poems. And I thought, this is the most expensive poetry workshop you've ever had. And that was just me saying yes, being asked to write. And, and it went with these PR things. You know, I did one about Slough once, a similar kind of thing, where I had to stand in front of a renter crowd in Slough writing a repost to John Benjamin's poem about Slough that somebody had won me reading the poem out in a competition. So that kind of thing you get when you say, yes, I'll do it. And the only thing we did get from the Domestos thing was... Uh, Martin Rosen, the fantastic political cartoonist, drew a cartoon for the Independent magazine. It was me, enormously fat, sat on a toilet, pooing out a poem. Going, eee, I do my writing poem. <laughs> and then I had him on the verb once. He gave me a framed copy of this poem. Ah, <laughs> dear me. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So, so really, I mean, I think your word should have been yes, shouldn't it? Yes. <laughs> Clearly what you say most Well, I'm often. having to teach myself um, not to. You know, I'm getting older. I'm 64 now. I still like, you know, I'm, and what I'm finding is I'm, everything's gone full circle for me. You know, I'm partly because of lockdown, partly because of the pandemic. I'm spending more time working in community art. There's a place called Darts, Lancaster Community Arts. I'm doing right. workshops there for people with mental health issues, for people with 
I'm working in Barnsley, for Barnsley museums, doing the stuff I used to do when I first started. And it feels like, you know, I've gone on a kind of long tra trajectory and now it's things are coming on. Because I'm doing, I'm doing fewer things. I'm learning to say no. If my wife was in this room, she'd do a hollow laugh because she knows that I find it really hard <laughs> to say no. But I am slowly and gradually learning to say no. Or at least, uh, if not no, then, well, I'll think about it. Yeah, it's not so. It's not just really being about uh, being a poet, is it? It's uh, it's doing all kinds of things. I mean, yeah. do, this I know this is a really cheesy question, but a do you have a passport? And because uh, not everyone has, no. but does it does it still have your profession? They don't on have it? them on anymore. They, I don't they, know where the passports do. I've got a passport, oh. but they don't. Have, they used to, I would have put poet. I would have put. I think I'd have put. Yeah. I think I'd have put wordsmith. You know what I mean? Because. Uh, I don't just write poems. Yeah, yeah. I write, I write, every week I write a, an article for the Yorkshire Post, a little column for the Yorkshire Post. Mm. It has to be exactly 550 words, or they don't print, they don't yeah. print them. I write, then I write a fortnightly column for the Barnsley Chronicle. I write a monthly column for the Dalesman. So I just love my ambition. What I love, I tell you what, I love writing poems. I love performing. I love being on the radio. But what I really love is writing columns for newspapers. Kind of dying oh, really? thing. It really is, but... I used to be a huge fan of Patrick Campbell from Sunday Times. And I yes, used to love yeah. reading Patrick Campbell. I've got all his collected columns in my, in my book. He, he wrote these columns, and I thought, it was about him. It was about what he did. So for years, I had a column in the Sheffield Telegraph, and I started this one in the Barnsley Chronicle. And they used to pay me 25 quid for this column. And uh, I said to my agent, Adrian, I said, ring him up just for a joke and see if they'll pay 28. So I've been doing it for years and years and years. And they rang back and said, no, tell you what, we'll pay 30, but you can only do it once a fortnight. <laughs> so I'm still doing it. You know, so every once, once every other Saturday, I'll get up early after my stroll and write. And that's a bit longer, 850 words. I'll write me. And I just love the idea. The other person I would love, used to love reading, was Miles Kington, first in the Times. Then in the yes, Indian I was going to mention Poet. him, actually. Miles Kington. As soon as you mentioned Every that, day. Yeah. He wrote a column every day. That would be my dream, to have a daily column for a newspaper. I think, how would you do that? You know, it, and it, you know, some columns are better than others, but a lot of Miles Kington's were amazing. There was uh, when Flann O'Brien, under his pen name Miles Nugacopoline, right, those ones for the mm. Irish Times, that was a daily thing. Yeah. You think, wow, that's like, in a sense, it's like writing a tweet. It trains the brain. You've got to write one. Sometimes, you know, when, I'm, when I can't sleep, I, can, I sleep very well, but not for long, but when I can't sleep, I have these fancies about some newspaper ringing me up and going, <laughs> like a daily column. One day it might happen. Gosh, that would be that. Yeah. That's amazing, yeah. yeah. Partly because I used to like <laughs> reading the Americans. Americans like S.J. Perelman and Robert Benchley. Mm. People in the New Yorker. I still subscribe to the New Yorker. I remember the first time I went to America in 1977 uh, on the Greyhound bus. Run out of money on the way back. I had, I had a dollar left. But shall I buy a burger? No, I'll buy the New Yorker. I bought the New Yorker, and I still think yeah. there's something glorious about the New Yorker. I subscribe to it, and it's, it's not expensive to subscribe to. And it comes, and I just read it, and, and there's some fantastic columns. And it's not as column heavy as it used to be. But I used to read people like S. J. Perelman, like I said, Robert Benchley, Dorothy Parker, uh, Robert Alexander Woolcott, and they were just amazing prose stylists who could really turn a sentence. And, find that an astonishingly addictive form of writing. People like Joan Didion yeah. on a separate level. She's my hero in terms of prose writing. That kind. That is, I love writing yeah. that kind of thing. I'm just going to go and switch the light on, which is getting very dim in Barclay. Nobody <laughs> is right. it? The light's on, the light isn't. <laughs> it gets darker earlier. Yes, it though. does. I think it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, just, I was just looking at the map. Because you, you've been in um, Darfield... Your All my life, life, yeah. I just live about, yeah. uh, what, half a mile from where I was born. I mean, Darfield's just a village about five miles out of Barnsley. It's a very old village. It was in the Doomsday Book on a Roman road. There are Roman coins found here. Um, there's an idea that maybe it was quite a big Roman settlement uh, with, a, with a villa mm. and stuff. Then it was an agricultural place for years and years, and then they found coal. And so from the late 19th, early 20th century, it was a pit village. And then when all the pits shut after the strike, it was in a terrible state, uh, trying its best 
to reinvent itself and where I'm sitting I can look across where the coal mine was where my father-in-law worked at Oaten, Oaten Main as it was called Oaten Main and mm-hmm. now what's there is big ASOS warehouse as seen on screen which is uh, where people send oh, off really? and buy their, their clothes and, and it's interesting that it used to employ thousands of people now ASOS employs thousands of people and when I go for my early stroll about 20 past five in the morning, I see the ATOS bus going past with people on there going to ATOS. In the same way, 30 or 40 years ago, I would have seen the pit bus going past with miners on going to yeah. work. And so, yeah, Darfield is in, in some ways an unremarkable place, but in many ways a remarkable place because we live through huge cultural, social, and economic changes. And to be honest with you, I could do my job anywhere. I can't drive, but uh, there's a bus stop the stations, mm. Doncaster, London. I like the idea that you know people, everybody around here knows me. You know they, they know me. They're not they're not bothered. They're not yeah. impressed. In fact, I'm on the radio on the television. But uh, when you when you were younger, did you did you have that thing about wanting to get away, or was I it think, that never entered? I think head? I did. I think yeah. I think as a young man, you think you should get away. My English teacher at school, one of them, Miss Gray, said. You'll never, you'll never manage it. You, you must go to London. You must go to London. You won't be able to make it as a writer around here. Apparently, I was kind of disagree with that. And I thought, well, you can. You can make it as a writer anyway. And then I thought, maybe as a young man, I thought you'd live some kind of peripatetic existence. You would live for a few years mm. here and a few years there. But then, you know, you kind of, the place grows around you. And so we've been in this house for 35 years and, we sometimes think about it. it's not a big house, only a semi-detached house, but you think it might be downsized one day. But my wife says, well, you know, the kids grew up here. Yeah. You know, there's the, they grew up, the garden is there, you know, they grew up playing in that garden. So I can't see myself moving, really. So maybe there was ambition when I was younger to move. I like people like George Mackay Brown, who was always on the same island in the Orkneys, or even more so, the Cumbrian poet Norman Nicholson, as far as I know, lived all his life in the house he grew up in, you know, so he never moved. And I think you can have one of my favourite phrases, the universal in the local. The universal can be found in the local. So in this unremarkable place, the endeavour, you see bravery, you see farces, you see laughter, you see joy, you see people working hard, you see people not working hard, you see kind of Shakespearean endeavour, you see sort of and small lives. So yeah, I think anywhere anywhere you are, you can write about. You know, any anywhere. And it's kind of psychogeographical yeah. in Sinclair way you can. Everywhere you, you know, when I walk down the street in the morning, I've walked down the street for so many years. I walk past my brother's house who lives just yards away, you know, and it's I don't want to make it feel like it's some kind of I don't know, like a northern cliche, but walk along streets that that people have walked on for years and years and years and I can see it and it kind of is my wellspring. Whereas in fact, you know, for me dad, he was always yeah. he always hankered maybe to go back to Scotland. So maybe if he had gone back to Scotland. And also we almost moved to Sheffield when I was young to be near my dad's work. So that might all have been different. Uh yeah, but I suppose it ties together what, what we uh, the words we we brought along, mm. doesn't it? I mean you're yes. seeing the kind of layers and layers of, of uh history and lives mm. In the place you've always lived in. And, and theatre. The I mean, the, the, this place becomes the a theatre. I wrote a book by me, the late Martin Wiley. There were a series of radio stories called the Richard Matthewman story that were about somebody growing up in Darfield at the same time we did. And it made Darfield into a place of myth and a place of kind of broad theatrical canvas. And also, you're right, you know, the layers on this place, the layers of language, the layers of stories. If you live in the same place mm. all your life, then inevitably that's going to happen, you know, and you couldn't, that wouldn't happen, that something something different and maybe better would happen if you mm. live somewhere in different, for different times, you know, in different times of your life, if you live somewhere, then then a, a writing would come out of that. So I don't know, I mean, you could never, you can only speculate, can't you? Because I am, I am the person I am and I, I can't move from here. And if I move from here now, this place would be like a long comic's tale behind me so it would always be there absolutely. yeah no I, I, it's, it's interesting because it, it's sort of completely opposite of what i did because um i was brought up uh, an hour and a half away from oh, here. where was that uh in accrington accrington fantastic well i like accrington gosh i got completely yeah. lost in accrington i came out the train <laughs> i got i got i was doing this thing in a school in accrington 
And this chap, I think, does he recognise my Yorkshire accent? Then they completely the wrong way. He said, excuse me, my man, which way is so-and-so school? He went, uh, first left, second right, you can't. <laughs> totally and utterly lost. And then the Accrington Library upstairs, that is yeah. now a fantastic, or before the lockdown, fantastic yeah. performance space. So, yeah. Crinton. Yeah, yes, lovely. Like now that that was the library I used to go to. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a fantastic building, isn't it? it really is. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, and there used to be a children's library around the corner from it, a dedicated mm. building. That was Proper a children's, children's library. library. Yeah. So where did you go after that? Then where were you after Accrington? Well, then I went to university in London. So yeah, that was really yeah getting away from mm. from uh, from home. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so it's I guess. You know, you do make these choices, but you but you kind of wonder. I mean, I admire that the the that the resolve, the uh, the the vision that you have that you can do your career anywhere. Um, can it? I mean, you think in our job, in my job, you can be a writer anywhere, particularly these days. You know, like yeah. internet. You know, you can be you can be a writer anywhere. It was interesting when uh, the first ten years of its life, uh, the Verb was in London, and then. From 2002 to 2012, then in 2012 the show moved to Salford. Interesting right. that in uh, the London um, Radio Three people said, "Good news, Ian, you're moving to Salford." I said, "You think the North is a very small island, and that Salford's just on the next beach, whereas in fact it takes <laughs> me 20 minutes longer to get to Salford because it does it really. To London, yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's about it's about 40 miles as the crow flies. If I went to London, I would get the bus." to Doncaster, which took 20 minutes. Then I get a train to London, which took an hour and a half. Now I have to get the bus to Barnsley, train to Huddersfield, train to Manchester, tram to Silver. It takes, yeah, it takes 20 minutes longer. So strange, strange. But that, that's the but pull that's of London, thing. isn't it, I guess? That's the pull of London. Yeah. The greatest to ever happen. We'll be able to say, I'm just going to pop to London. And that's the thing. We're going to, I'm doing that myself. You know, you've popped down for something in London. And and you you've always uh, as you say you don't drive so you've always no. uh, taken the train. Uh, yeah, the, the, the driving was. I mean, I, I I did have a couple of lessons when I was seventeen with a man who was more nervous than me. In the end, <laughs> I wrote I wrote a story about it with this Richard Matthewman thing because he was so nervous. This fellow. And then I got in the car because I thought I should learn to drive. It's all your mates learn to drive this way. I got in the car, and. He said, instead of saying grip the wheel at 10 to 2, he said, grisp the wheel at 10 past 2. Held the, the <laughs> steering wheel. And he smacked me on the hand. He said, oh, it's a stupid. So we set off down the street. This is awesome. And we got to this chapel, the Methodist chapel at the bottom of Barnsley Road. He said, look, I'm just going to pop in the chapel and get something. It won't be a minute. Stay here. So I'm in the car, and he's gone for about 10 minutes. And I thought, well, what's something's gone wrong? So I went in the chapel. This is true. Stood at the pulpit, mumbling from the Bible. And it turned out he double-booked my driving lesson with his portion of a 24-hour sponsored Bible reading. He said, I won't be a minute. I won't be a minute. I said, forget it. This is some kind of sign. Driving's not for me. So I never had another lesson. And the thing was, in those days, because this was the Socialist Republic of South Yorkshire, I could get anywhere on the bus for two pence. I could get to Barnsley for two pence. I could get to Sheffield for eight pence. And, and also, you know, the buses went all day and they were late at night. These days, the only faff, the only time I wish I could drive is that sometimes you'll do a gig somewhere and it's not that far away, but the last train's gone. So you end up yeah. staying over in a hotel or in someone's house. when in fact, if you could drive, you'd be home in an hour. That's the only faff. The thing about the trains and buses is, because trains are worse than buses, buses are all right, but because the trains up until lockdown have been so terrible in terms of liability, I always end up getting the train at least an hour before the one I want to get. Yeah. I might be late. So I've spent most of my life sitting in railway buffets because they'll say, right, you've got to be there for 10 a.m. I'll be there for 8 a.m. because yes. I just don't trust them. Oh, but I made a radio program called The Late Ian McMillan about being early because I am pathologically, ridiculously early. Uh, because I think it gives you a sense of power. Like if I'm doing yeah. a gig in a Billy Joel, Sometimes they don't lock them. So me and my mate will arrive. We're meant to be there at five o'clock. We'll arrive at half past four or four o'clock. You can get in, and then it's your space. Here's the thing again. Mm. Here I am in my space. I'll rearrange the seats. This is where we are. This is where it is. Then yeah. when the organisers come, I'll 
welcome them into my space. And that's why I like to welcome the audience when I do a gig. I like to stand at the front and say, hello, I'm just welcome them all in and give them a free postcard and stuff. Because that sounds great. That's but yeah, that's about, that's about being early. So yeah, that, that's, that's me not driving. Yeah. And I, can't, I won't learn now, it's a bit late. <laughs> no, my, son, my, son, to... my son's also a poet and he doesn't drive, so poets don't drive. Oh, that's Andrew, yeah. Andrew, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in fact, uh, I think uh, Arthur Smith, who doesn't drive, said much the same thing. Poets, uh, poets don't drive. Well, in fact, um, Wendy Cope calls us tumps, typically useless male poets. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, do, but I was going to ask about your gigging then. So obviously, that's that's kind of it's all on hold, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, is. it is. Which is a shame. I mean, it's. It, I love it. I absolutely love performing in public. It's a thing that I. I, I just feel most alive when I'm standing in front of an audience. The last performance I did was in March uh, at Penniston Paramount Cinema. It's part mm. of the Penniston Festival. And it's a fantastic venue. I did a gig, just read poems. We had a fantastic laugh. And at the end, I said to the organiser, wonderfully named Brian Barnsley, I said, what's going to happen, Brian? He said, well, I've had to cancel an ACDC tribute act. I said, oh, maybe things aren't going to go so well. But at the time, we thought... Well, we all thought, didn't we? It might be a month, yeah. it might be two months. Then the gigs started getting cancelled yeah. and then rebooked. So they cancel a gig in the spring and it will be rebooked for now and they've got cancelled. Uh, yeah. Stuff that's now booked for January, February is being cancelled. People are saying we might get something going in the early summer. But the thing about the village halls, the thing about my demographic, is they're all people my age and above, to be honest with you. So I get a lot of people in the 60s, village halls, people in the 70s. They're a bit nervous of turning out, you know. So yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. I, it, I I miss it so much. I miss just that thing of walking into a room and just standing up in a room and performing. The smaller room, the better for me. My mate Luke, the musician that I work with, he says yeah. he likes performing big rooms. I say, no, give me give me a village hall with 30 people in. Oh, that's yeah. great. Just a room yeah. with some people in. I started doing... Like a lot of folk musicians do, like doing house gigs. Somebody will book you to do a gig in their house because oh, really? I'm always looking for new venues. Now I noticed that um, on folk musicians' itineraries, it would say Art Centre, Village Hall, Pub. Then it would say House Performance. I thought, well, what what is that? And it turns out it is this invisible circuit of people really? performing in people's houses. And of course, you can't advertise it because you can only get twenty five no. people in the house. So you don't want hundred people. I've done I've done several of them and they're interesting because you'll get you might get thirty people in, they all pay a tenner and, and you get the money straight away, it cuts out the middleman as it were. Yeah. But it is an invisible circuit. But the trouble is you can't do anything like that. Lockdown, because the idea of social right. distancing gone completely. So I do love performing and who knows, who really knows when it'll get back to what it was before. Let's hope so. Yeah, well, uh, when it does get back, they'll definitely invite you down to uh, down to Tunbridge. Love, I'd love to. Uh, and, uh, yeah, sort something out there and yeah. and buy you that uh, that pie or custard. Oh, the pie, yeah, the natter, the natter, the wonderful yeah. uh, natter of Portugal. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but um, so what are you doing to, to kind of keep yourself busy, or is that a silly question? Do you, you well, uh, yeah, I'm still doing the. The regular columns, so they keep me going. Um, I'm, I'm writing a little bit of a book, about a kind of travel book about the coast. I've been little bits about that. Uh, I've been writing, Barnsley Council made me their poet in lockdown. So I've been writing these uh, sonnets in lockdown. I thought I'll write sonnets because sonnet is an interesting um, technical exercise as much as anything else. And I wanted people to write their sonnets and send them in. So I've been writing these sonnets We've been putting them on the website, the Hear My Voice Barnsley website, and encouraging people to send them in. A man in Darfield called Ken Brooks, a bit like Norman. He'd never written sonnets before. I've suddenly been bitten by the sonnet bug. He keeps writing yeah. sonnets on Twitter. Ian, I've only written five today. You know, that's, I've been doing quite a lot of that. Uh, I've been doing loads of reading for The Verb. I've been uh, doing lots of community artwork in Doncaster, often on Zoom, often because you can't meet with these people creating podcasts so yeah i've definitely i've kept myself busy but what i really have missed is getting in the car with my mate luke and him driving us down to some village or somewhere and just making mm. a and coming back later tonight but you know that that'll come back and if it doesn't to the same extent then 
you know, I'll just regard it as a fantastic time in my life and just mm. think, well, I can, I'll, I'll keep writing. Going. Well, um, I, I sincerely hope that's not the case. No, <laughs> so moment. Yeah. Well, I, I shall have to have a go at a sonnet then, won't I? So yeah, did there. And the great thing about a sonnet is, I mean, Don Patterson said it, that the rhyme will hand you other rhymes that you hadn't thought of. And right. they do get a bit addictive. I've got to say, the Shakespearean, the Petrarchan, the Spenserian, <laughs> all these different kinds of sonnets. They, they they train the brain in the same way that a tweet does. They make you think creatively. So they can, as I say, they can get addictive. You can think, I want to think outside this sonic area sometimes. They're very good for reading and writing for an audience that aren't used to reading poetry. They'll think, oh, this looks like a proper poem. This is a proper poem. Right. Then they can have a go at writing their own. Yeah, definitely. So that's been your kind of lockdown project then it does really yeah but and, and i got a fantastic heckle from a car i, I love getting heckled from cars. It, there being the thing in the bars of chronicle about he's our poet in lockdown as soon as you added it should be locked up <laughs> <Good. God bless laughs> yeah so uh so have you got big plans then for i mean it's, lots of people are sort of kind of planning what to do post uh vaccine i suppose and uh you know my uh, ambition what i'd like to do there's lots of things I want to do post-vaccine in terms of performing. I'm desperate to go to, when it's all, when we can do this, back to, there's a pub in Sheffield called the Lesker that mm. puts on jazz, and I love jazz. So my thing is to go to the Lesker on a Wednesday night. There's going to be loads of people there. And I've got after social media. There's going to be somebody playing avant-garde jazz. It sounds <laughs> like, as Andy Kershaw called it, a fire in the face. Maybe. <laughs> We're going to be, and I, I don't drink a lot, but I might have a drink of beer. Um, that's what I'm looking forward to. Just this thing of being close to people because I'm a, my wife keeps telling me, distance, distance, you know, not with her, obviously, but just with people when I, when I meet somebody. Hello, yeah. distance, Ian, because I'm just a, I'm a chap who likes to be close to people. I love being close yeah. to people. And this has been the worst bit, you know, to stand yards away from people. So what yeah. I'm looking forward to most is being close to people. And being really close to people in a room where there's a bit of jazz playing, a bit of poetry going on, and just so, and I think I'm hoping that's going to happen. I really do hope it will. Yeah, and as this goes out, uh, just probably just before Christmas, uh, what what's the uh, Macmillan family Christmas normally like, and what's it going to be like this time? Well, normally uh, it's just a fantastic thing where all the kids and my mother-in-law and everybody come on Christmas Eve. We have a nice party, and then. All the kids come on Christmas Day, and then we go to my sister-in-law's house on Boxing Day. We go to my mother-in-law's house on the evening of Christmas Day. But instead, we're going to have to, like everybody else, just do it in shifts, you know. So uh, get one daughter and husband on Christmas Eve, get the other daughter on Christmas Day. I'm, I'm not looking forward to that, you know. I, I partly, because I, I love, I love Christmas so much. It's my mm. favourite, favourite thing. But so right. I said to my wife, let's let's maybe not let's just regard it another day. Let's just let's let it go. But in fact, you know, we are being loosened a bit, aren't we? So we've got to make the best of it. But the worst bit will be, you know, not that the grandkids would normally be around all of them, but that's not gonna happen. You know. Yeah. It'll pass, it's just a day. Um I have a slightly different attitude to Christmas because sadly, but also kind of gloriously, uh, my dad died on Christmas Day two thousand and one. And my dad was like me, a huge, huge Christmas fan. And lose your dad on Christmas Day, it's an odd thing, you know. But he, I remember, like singing my dad, and he would sing all the time. And he, he, I remember him dying on Christmas Day in Barnsley Hospital. The night before, I'd been to see him, and the nurses said, I said, how is he? And she said, are you asking me if he's going to die? I said, yeah. She said, he won't die today. I think he's going to die tomorrow. And I said, all right. She said, anyway, we've got him a present. That's what we do. And so they got him a present, and the present was some aftershave and deodorant. Mm-hmm. I opened it for him. He was laying there in his bed, and he did know what it was. But uh, I remember opening this thing. I thought, oh, there you go. Going to the next one, going to the next room, smelling nice. So, you know, it, it, I don't know. It was a horrible thing, but also it felt kind yeah. of fitting that somebody ends their life on the day they love them all. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to Christmas, but I'm looking forward to next Christmas even more. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Well, uh, listen, thank you, Ian. I, d- I don't want to take mm. up any more of your time. <laughs> it's, uh, thank you very it's much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And, and I hope, hopefully we, we will uh, meet in the real world. <laughs> I think we will. Uh, definitely we will. We have that cup of tea uh, yes. or that, uh, that pie or, and yes. that chat. And, uh, and yeah, if you can, if you can, uh, if you can bear to get the train all the way down to the southeast of England, then, can, um, we'll, we'll look after you. All right. Thank you very much. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Ian. So that's Ian McMillan, uh, a lovely chap. And, and a, a really encouraging and positive perspective on writing. And that idea of creating spaces for writing to happen. Um, it sounds a bit weak to say he makes poetry accessible, but he, he definitely does. And it's, and it's always engaging and entertaining and thought-provoking. His book, um, To Fold the Evening Star, is, I think, a brilliant introduction to his writing. And it, and it uh, embeds poetry in real life as well as embedding his real life in the poetry itself um and it's not just funny although it is quite often it's also quite challenging and you'll see what um what i mean about creating spaces for for the words to act if you read it uh, and of course you can order a copy of ian's book to fold the evening star or any of his others by calling into mr books or going online to www.mrbooks.co.uk we have uh, uh, another very exciting guest. I'm seriously excited about this coming up in the new year. So if you don't want to miss that, uh, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast.com being one of the best. Um, Ideas in Writing is supported by Mr. Books Bookshop in Tunbridge, the home of independent, inspiring and imaginative books, gifts and conversation, including an exclusive range of book related and Mr. Books inspired T-shirts. Whatever you buy from us helps to support an independent bookshop. So if you're listening to this before Christmas, I hope it's smashing. And if you're listening after Christmas, let's hope 2021 is proving to be a great year. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hello, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us. You just need to click on the link and become an ACAST supporter. It's a one-off donation. You can give as much or as little as you like, and uh, there's no commitment. But it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts. So thank you very much.